It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 823 for the 17th of March, 2023. This week, many businesses issue two or more computer monitors to each employee. That's because they've discovered that a modest hardware investment improves productivity. Maybe it's time for home users to have more than one monitor, too. In short circuits, users of Adobe's Creative Cloud can download and test beta versions of more than a dozen applications. The betas run alongside the installed release versions. A handy utility application for McAfee leaves behind some software that may slow your computer, and how to get rid of the extra app isn't obvious. And 20 years ago, only on the website, although most computers purchased today come from China. In 2003, the change was just beginning. How many computer monitors are on your desk? I've had two or three if you count the notebook's built-in monitor on my desk for many years. Multiple monitors are common in business, and editors often have two or three monitors so that the document they're working on can be separate from style sheets, dictionary applications, and other reference materials. When I was hospitalized late last year, I had my wife bring a Surface 6 Pro tablet so I could at least do some work. It was painful. The tablet has a 12-inch monitor. I could use it to connect to my home office computer, but displaying the contents of a 27-inch monitor on a 12-inch monitor produces barely readable text. Instead of two big monitors and a laptop screen, I had one small monitor. Work was possible, but not easy. During my month in an assisted living facility, I found a way to at least place the screen at eye level. That was better, but it was still just a small screen. More recently, I was stuck with a single monitor for nearly five weeks. Because the single monitor was one of the 27-inch monitors on my desk, it wasn't as bad as when my computing setup was reduced to a single small monitor, but it still wasn't fun. I'll tell you about that in just a bit. Multiple monitors are no longer a luxury for office workers, and even home users should consider whether a second or even a third monitor would make using the computer easier or more efficient. When cathode ray tubes were king, 16-inch monitors were big and 18-inch monitors were huge. Cathode ray tubes ran hot, the monitors hogged the entire desk, and often they weighed 50 pounds or more. Today's monitors are less than an inch thick, they emit little heat, and it's hard to find any that measure less than 18 inches diagonally. Except for high-end monitors designed for photo and video editing, even big monitors are reasonably priced. So how do you know if you need more than one monitor? Well, here's one clue. If you have to minimize one application frequently to see another, you're definitely a candidate. Or if you have to print calendars, schedules, and reference materials so you can refer to them while using the computer, you probably need another monitor. With three screens, I can easily have a text editor and an email application on one screen, a browser with a reference window on a second monitor, and a clock or utility application on the notebook's screen. 
That's why many businesses either issue all employees computers with two monitors or provide a second monitor to anybody who asks for one. Productivity is important to business users, but also for individuals. Most computers have connections for at least one external monitor, sometimes two, and there are hardware options for those that don't. Photo and video editing are obvious candidates for multiple monitors, but anybody who works with words might find it helpful to concentrate on one monitor while having reference materials open on another monitor to eliminate the need to repeatedly move windows around the screen. Even casual computer users can benefit from a second monitor, keeping email, Word, or Excel on the main screen with Facebook, a dictionary, or streaming video on a second screen. Current notebook computers have at least one display port or HDMI video port for an external monitor. I think they should have at least two, but if there's a Thunderbolt port, it's fairly easy to add a Thunderbolt to dual HDMI adapter. That's the method I use. Or at least it's the method I used to use. I was reminded how important two monitors are to me when both monitors went dark simultaneously a couple of days before Christmas. I suspected it was probably the Thunderbolt adapter, so I bought a new adapter. Both monitors stayed dark when I connected it, but they still worked when I switched them to the Mac, so that ruled out the adapter and the monitors. I swapped out the Thunderbolt cable that connected the adapter, no change there, so I contacted Lenovo for assistance. In the meantime, I connected one of the large monitors to the notebook computer's single HDMI port. The technician who examined the machine online did something unusual. He believed me when I described the tests I'd already done, so we didn't have to repeat them. Half an hour later, he concluded that the motherboard had a failed component and arranged to have a technician make a house call. In the meantime, I at least had that single large monitor. I thought about a problem with Phyllis's computer when she was still working. A motherboard failure kept her from being able to log on to the corporate VPN, even though the computer worked normally in all other regards. The company couldn't send a technician, so they sent a motherboard, and I replaced it. The motherboard is always the least accessible part of the computer, because everything else connects to it. The technician who arrived with the new motherboard for my computer removed the access port for the hard drive and memory. He removed the memory and the hard drive. He removed the keyboard so he could separate the upper and lower parts of the case. But then he couldn't get the bottom part of the case to separate from the top part. That's unusual. Notebook computers are challenging, but once all of the appropriate screws and all other components are out of the way, separating the component parts with a spudger is usually pretty easy. Usually. Not this time. So the computer had to be sent in for depot service, and I thought I might be left with just a single Surface 6 Pro tablet and its tiny screen and keyboard. That thought didn't last very long, though. The Surface does have a mini-DP port, and I have a mini-DP to HDMI adapter. The maximum resolution is less than I'd like, but at least I had a big monitor. I connected the keyboard and mouse to a four-port USB adapter that I bought during my month in assisted living, so it was a lot like what I'd been using already since Christmas. The primary difference was that the case that holds four fixed disks doesn't play very well with the Surface. The drives all mount, but with the wrong drive letters. 
That turned out not to be a big problem because I had anticipated it and I copied essential files to locations on Google Drive. When the computer came back from depot service to have the motherboard replaced, I connected the peripherals and booted the computer. Neither of the external monitors worked. That might be because the motherboard had not been replaced. Thanks, Lenovo. The service notes explained that the technician who worked on the computer simply ran some tests that showed the Thunderbolt ports were working. Then he installed one firmware update and returned the computer to me. After raising that issue with Lenovo support, I waited a week for a callback. And then I decided there was not going to be any callback, so I placed the call. And then I found the case had been closed as resolved. I would like to say this is not typical for Lenovo, but if I said that, I would be lying. The technician who worked with me when I called again worked diligently for more than an hour, but without success. He suggested that I purchase a Lenovo dock, two models available, one for a little less than $400, the other for a little more than $400. This would be a test, and I could return the dock if it didn't work. But the dock was out of stock, and I'd already tried and failed to make a Lenovo dock work with the computer when I bought it a little less than a year ago. The technician asked if I had tested the monitor with a Thunderbolt 2 HDMI cable. I had not done that because I actually didn't know such cables existed. Instead of waiting for docks to be back in stock and paying $400 just to test one, I ordered a $14 Thunderbolt to HDMI cable. When it arrived, I connected one end to a Thunderbolt 4 port on the computer, the other end to the HDMI adapter on the second monitor. Immediate success. That does still leave open the question to what the underlying problem is and what needs to be done to correct it. But the $14 cable resolved the display issue, at least in the short term. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, anybody who subscribes to Adobe's Creative Cloud can install beta versions of some of the applications to see what the developers are working on. Beta versions install alongside the release versions, which is good because beta software, by definition, isn't yet ready to be released. Photoshop, Bridge, Illustrator, XD, Premiere Pro, After Effects, Audition, Character Animator, Media Encoder, and Premiere Rush are all included in the beta program. There's no need to join a beta software group. That's because beta applications are listed on the beta apps tab of the Creative Cloud desktop application. Once you've installed one of the beta applications, it will be updated automatically. Unlike new versions of existing applications, the beta versions don't install the user's preferences. And that may be a little bit of a problem, but it's understandable. 
If you have a workspace arrangement or other settings that you prefer for one of the applications, you can either recreate it manually in the beta app, and that's a pain, or locate the preferences file for the latest version of the application and copy it to the corresponding location in the beta app's directory. Photoshop, for example, stores its preferences in C, Users, Username, App Data, Roaming, Adobe, Adobe Photoshop Version Number, Adobe Photoshop Version Number Settings. That's what it does on a Windows computer. For Mac users, the settings are in Users, Username, Library, Preferences, Adobe Photoshop Version Number Settings. So, for my primary computer, the current version's settings are in C Users, Willy, AppData, Roaming, Adobe, Adobe Photoshop 2023, Adobe Photoshop 2023 settings. Preferences for Photoshop 2022 and 2021 are also present on my computer. I renamed Adobe Photoshop Beta Settings as Temp Adobe Photoshop Beta Settings. That's just in case copying the settings from the existing application created a problem. Then I created a new folder called Adobe Photoshop Beta Settings and copied all of the files from Adobe Photoshop 2023 settings to it. After renaming Adobe Photoshop 2023 Prefs to Adobe Photoshop Beta Prefs, I opened the beta version and took a look. I mention that because the process of using beta apps may require some tasks that aren't entirely straightforward. Two other things to be aware of are that beta software is less stable than the release version, and beta software is often slower because the code hasn't yet been optimized. It's also wise not to depend on everything that's in the beta version to be in the next release version. Sometimes features that appear to be ready for release are pulled because of performance issues. As with most beta programs, Adobe asks that users provide feedback about what they like, what they don't like, and what features they'd like to see. The beta apps also collect information from your computer and send it to Adobe. System information such as devices, operating system, amount of memory installed, and screen resolution. Adobe product information such as version number. Information about your documents, such as the number of pages and unique document identifiers. However, it does not include any of the content of the documents. Beta apps also send document usage information, such as how many times you open a document and how you interact with the apps and how the apps interact with your content. That includes features you use and options you select. And that's non-negotiable. If you use the beta applications, that information will be sent to Adobe. If you don't like that, just stick with the release versions. Sometimes new versions of applications require new file formats, but Adobe notes that beta builds are designed to preserve compatibility with the release versions. You can move files between the two. Moving project files from a beta build to the release version will drop any features that are available only in beta. Adobe also cautions that sometimes moving a file from the beta version to the release version might not be possible. So maybe it's a good idea not to use the beta version for any mission-critical files, or at least if you do, to make a copy. For details about the beta program, visit the Adobe Creative Cloud website there's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com.
McAfee Stinger is a free standalone app that can scan your computer for viruses and malware, but it also leaves behind something that you might not want. Stinger is a useful utility. It gets a lot of good reviews. Here's one from Softpedia. McAfee Stinger is a lightweight virus removal program whose purpose is straightforward, to scan the computer for infections on demand and remove the files, including viruses, trojans, and rootkits. Unlike all-around anti-malware solutions, this utility has a simpler set of features. A review from Dell Computers 10 years ago, Stinger is a free standalone on-demand utility that both detects and can remove specific viruses, trojans, and variants, currently over 6,200 on its list. It works on Windows XP, Vista, and Windows 7 operating systems, both 32 and 64-bit. By default, Stinger will repair all infected files detected. However, it can be configured to report or remove instead. It provides no real-time AV protection and is not a replacement for your regular resident AV. And a note for me, it also works with Windows 8, 10, and 11. As I said, that review is from Dell in 2013. Portable Apps says McAfee Stinger removes thousands of common viruses and fake alert malware on demand. It is not a replacement for a full antivirus, but handy in many situations. While not a replacement for full-fledged antivirus software, Stinger is updated multiple times a week to include detection for newer fake alert variants and prevalent viruses. Major Geeks puts it this way, McAfee Stinger is not a standalone antivirus product to protect your system, but more of a specialized tool to try to remove viruses from already infected systems. It's a niche tool that any tech would want to have on their thumb drive. Bleeping Computer puts it this way, McAfee Stinger is a standalone utility that's designed to target and remove specific computer infections and viruses, this program is not an antivirus solution, but rather a utility that can be used to remove stubborn infections. So there does seem to be some confusion about the meaning of standalone, but overall, the reviews are all good. The information from Bleeping Computer does mention Real Protect, which is intended to identify zero-day infections. The other reviews didn't mention that. McAfee's description includes this, and I quote, Stinger now includes Real Protect, a real-time behavior detection technology that monitors suspicious activity on an endpoint. Real Protect leverages machine learning and automated behavioral-based classification in the cloud to detect zero-day malware in real time. The Stinger application doesn't have to be installed. After downloading it, just run it. What isn't disclosed while the application is running is the fact that it will install that real protect component and it runs continuously. The scan process for me ran for a little more than two and a half hours on my computer's boot drive. It would be okay if real protect just ran quietly in the background, which it does, without affecting performance of the computer, which it does not. So there we have a double negative. It does not not affect the performance of the computer. Everything was much slower, including response to the keyboard. The mouse was sluggish, disk directories were slow to open, I could type sometimes 20 to 30 characters before anything appeared on my screen. And even that would be okay if there was a way to uninstall Real Protect easily. 
There is no entry for Real Protect or McAfee in add or remove programs, so I used Startup Delayer to disable Real Protect and then rebooted the computer to confirm that disabling the app didn't create a problem. It didn't, so I had Startup Delayer show me where the app's file was. I renamed the directory and rebooted again to further confirm that removing the file wouldn't cause a problem. It, of course, didn't, so then I deleted the directory. If an application is going to install something that runs at boot time, the user should be told about it and should be given the opportunity to decline the offer. And if an application installs something, there should be a clear way to uninstall it. McAfee fails on both counts. Now, that's not to say Stinger isn't useful. It is. Just beware of the potential downsides. 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website leaves nothing behind. In 2003, IBM computers were still made by IBM, not Lenovo, but the process of moving manufacturing to China was well underway. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>